Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you shall see him. Behold, I've told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there you shall see me. Verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The resurrection of Jesus is enough assurance that God is in control of this world. The simplest meaning of Easter is that we live in a world where God has the last word so that the resurrection of Jesus is proof of the divine government. I think, I'm afraid sometimes we think of God as some kind of an infinite, marvelous abstraction, a kind of a disincarnate principle, a force that dwells some body of undiscovered knowledge somewhere and that he is totally unacquainted with the human experience. When Adolf Eichmann was brought back to Tel Aviv to be tried for his crimes against the Jews, they put him in a bulletproof compartment to address him, and one reporter was given the opportunity to, to um, talk to him or to inquire of him, and he was given the questions. One question was, do you believe in God? Adolf Eichmann said, I believe in God. But I don't believe that God is concerned, nor does He even know about our little lives. Jack Monod, the French existentialist, expressed the same uh, dilemma of bitterness and frustration when he said, Man knows that he is alone in this vast, immense, unfeeling universe from which he has emerged 
totally by chance. What Manol was saying is that man is the cosmic accident in this vast, unfeeling, unknowing universe that plummets uncontrolled through space. But the resurrection is a reminder of the immediate government of God in the affairs of men. And that government is autocratic, which means that God doesn't ask us how we think He ought to govern His universe. He doesn't take a vote in some boardroom. And it is absolute. He makes room for no compromise. And it is universal. It includes everybody. Jesus said, All authority is given me in heaven and on earth. On Easter time, it's a good time to think about the divine government of God. It contains three elements. There is a perplexing element in it, disturbing. Jesus is speaking to people who will never be the same again. Once you see the resurrected Lord, you can't go back to where you were. For the last three years of their lives, they've been on this gigantic roller coaster, one up and one down, one up and one down. And now something has happened that has disturbed the very foundation of their lives, and they know they can never go home again. They don't understand all that has happened to them, but they know they can't see their homes the same way any longer. And they can't go back to their businesses and do the same things they'd always done before. They will never be the same. Their world has been turned upside down. It's always been like that. For whenever God called a people, He went to a little village called Ur, and there He found a man by the name of Abram. And Abram was a pagan, believe it or not. His parents were pagan. They worshipped pagan deities. But God arbitrarily came to this nomadic shepherd one day and said, the first time Abram ever encountered Jehovah God, he heard him say, I want you to get up and leave this place from the house of your kindred, from the home of your father, to a land that I will show you. And he got up not knowing where he was going. It's always like that. To be governed by God is to be disturbed. It's to have the human arrangement interfered with. You can't settle down. There is no settling in in with this deity. He's always on the move. That seems to be the essence of his reality. I was talking not long ago to a preacher. He was asking me about some evangelist. Want to know if I could recommend him. He said this about his church. He said, we're dead. We're indifferent. We're lethargic. We have no life. We need somebody who will come in and what he called peel the hide, disturb us, shake us up, he said. Will this man do it? I didn't answer what I really thought about answering. My answer should have been, no, what you need is to understand is a new understanding of God, the great disturber. Jürgen Moltmann, the theologian, has pointed to this dynamic Character as the distinguishing characteristic of biblical religion. All pagan religions, which he calls epiphany religions, center on creating stability in the midst of chaos. A condition of permanence in the midst of time and space. And their opposite, he says. 
of the Exodus religion of Abraham, which does not see change as an enemy, but change as the way God does His work and, and moves human beings to fulfillment. And he says, quote, Security with this kind of God never means sitting still or possessing something or remaining static. It means being continually on the way to some goal beyond the present that beckons us but is yet unattained. The symbol of this kind of religion would be a hoisted sail, not an anchor. The goal is a promised land out ahead, not a haven of rest. What God is saying in the resurrection is this. this. You can't remain where you are. Now these disciples had gotten used to this strange holy man. They didn't understand him at first. The things he said, what he taught, the way he acted, never been like that before. And they were beginning to feel some comfort and security in the fact that with him there they would always have something to eat. And they'd never have to fear because he could still the storms. And they were kind of settling in when all of a sudden something happened like an earthquake that shook the very foundation of their lives. No, nothing would ever be the same again. The things that they had depended on and trusted in and leaned on and taken for granted were all swept away and God was saying, it's time to get up from here and move on. God says that in the very construction of our bodies. Have you ever thought of that? There are no tools for reshaping the past. No provisions for retreat. We have eyes, not in the back of our heads, but in front. And we have hands to do the task in front of us and feet pointing in one direction. No means of reshaping the past. No provisions for retreat. God saying to His people, it's time to get up and move from here. There is no security. There is no peace with a great disturber. There's not only a perplexing element in the divine government, there is a progressive element in the divine government. And why was He disturbing them? And the divine revelation flashes in order that the whole world might own Him as King. For every time God disturbs your life, it is that that life might reach a higher level. And if you read church history, you'll find it again and again that every time somebody settles down and is content with things as they are, with a status quo, God disturbs them. There's a crisis because we were never meant to stay the same. We were meant always to move to a higher life, to a higher level. And so like little birds, we're flung out of the nest in order that we might learn to fly with our wings. There is a marvelous little story in the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy. And God, through Moses, is addressing His people. And this is what He says to them, listen. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. He found them in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him 
He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Here it is, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. I want you to go with me and I'll help you understand this analogy to a high mountain. And on this ledge of this high mountain is an eagle's nest. She has her little eaglets there. And every day she flies into that nest and they open their mouths and she feeds them and cares for them. And they're secure in that warm nest and the care of their mother. And every day she comes and the same process. She brings them food she's killed and feeds them. And then one day some, something strange happens, like something cruel, like she's angry. This mother eagle begins to rip this nest apart. And with her wings she sweeps out these little eaglets over the side of that precipice and they, they fall helplessly down to the rocks beneath and they're struggling in terror. And just before they're bashed on the rocks beneath, she swoops under them and catches them on her wings and carries them back to the, to the rocky ledge. And that experience is repeated over and over and over again until one day when she drops them, they no longer struggle and fall. They stretch out their wings and they begin to soar with their mother sunward. Here were these men. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were patriots. One of them was a tax collector, the most hated man in the Jewish world. And everything was going fine until one day Jesus appeared out of the blue and stirred their nest. For three years, these fishermen sat at the feet of God Himself. And John wrote about it later when he said, That which our eyes have seen, that which our ears have heard, that which our hands have touched, is the, is the eternal Word Himself. And so He stirred them from fishing nets and fishing boats to a higher life. God never intends for us to live on this little plane of, of uh, spectators. He means for us, as the song we sang this morning, to soar with Him. As a kid, I was terribly shy. That comes as a shock to some of you. Some of you couldn't care less, but I was terribly shy. I could never even raise my head. I, I was so, so... Uh, reticent, backward they called me back then. And I hated school. And I remember in the second grade, uh, I, one morning we, get, we were getting ready to go to school. I didn't want to go to school. There were bullies up there at school, beat up on you. And there were, there were teachers that fussed at you, you know. People I didn't know, I didn't like to go to school. We were getting ready to leave for the bus. We had to walk a mile to, to a main road. That's how far I live in the country. My sister and I were getting ready, and I was crying. I'll never forget it. And I told Mother, I'm not going to school anymore. I don't like school. And I can remember she, although she wasn't a real um, affectionate person, she took me and embraced me. 
And she said, yeah, we're going to school. She said, we gotta be, we're going to be everything that God wants us to be. And she kind of gave me a little hug and a little playful slap on my backside and sent me out the door. Now, was that cruel? Had you been there to see that, would you say that was a cruel thing for a mother to do? No, it would have been cruel had she not done that. And so you look back over the history of your life and you see those disturbing things that God has orchestrated to happen to you. Cruel? No. For God intends for you to be all that you can be. And that's the way He gets you there. That leads me to the last element of the divine government. That is, it has a purpose in it. Now why is He shaking them to their foundations? The answer is in the text that the world might be one. Think of it. He's talking to 11 men who are more common, uneducated than the vast majority of people here. Kids in this group today who have an elementary education knew more than these men. He's talking to 11 men and He was saying to them, I want you to win the world. Now you think how that sounded. They'd never even heard of the world. They'd never seen probably a map or an atlas or a globe. And Jesus was standing before them saying, I've chosen 11 of you and I'm sending you out to win the world. We've not done it. While I speak this morning, there are a million, there are 1.2 billion people who have never even heard the gospel. And if you sent them by your house, if they lined up single file and marched by your house on an average of 60 paces a, a, a minute, and they walked seven days a week, 24 hours a day, it would take 38 years for them to pass your house. Just folks who have never heard the gospel. And I read somewhere recently that every three days, 60,000 children die of starvation. 60,000. There were 180,000 people killed in the bomb at Hiroshima. So every three days, there is a silent Hiroshima that occurs on planet Earth. And Jesus said 2,000 years ago, Win the world. We've not done it. You take a map and a pencil and you'll understand that God's limit always exceeds anything we've ever attained. Somebody said that God's goal for us exceeds our grasp or what is heaven for? And the author of the book of Hebrews makes a haunting statement when after describing the faithful lives of the faithful of God, he said, and they all died without having received what was promised them. And you say, well, that's a tragedy, isn't it? That a person dies before he realizes his goal. Let me tell you a greater tragedy. That's for a person to outlive his dream. There are some of you this morning who have outlived your dream. 
There's some of you whose dreams of life or life died a long time ago and you're marking time to the end. The greater tragedy is for a person to outlive his dream. You know what God is saying in the divine government of the resurrection? He's saying that if you join in this redemptive mission on earth, you will be a part of something that will outlive you. And He's saying, if you'll become a part of this redemptive mission, you'll be a part of something that outlives death itself, man's last enemy. And so Paul could finish his chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, with this great shout. Thanks. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It is greater than death. There's something else here. Listen carefully. And so Jesus spoke to them and said, You go on down to Galilee, and when you get to Galilee, you'll find me there. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, wherever you go in your tomorrows, you'll find that He's always, already preceded you. Now there's some of you who listen to my voice, it's true, will go through the dark valley of the shadow in the months ahead, and some of you will come to the jaws of death itself. It always happens. This text says, that when you get into your tomorrows, whatever those tomorrows are, you'll find that Jesus is there ahead of you. And He's never surprised at what you find there. Ray Stedman was born in Illinois. His parents were profoundly religious, so he was taught faith and how to pray. And he said when he was just a little boy, they were packing up to move to Idaho. And they had all these boxes packed in his room <clears throat> suggesting that this is the last night he's going to be in Illinois. And Ray Stedman said, I remember getting down on my knees to say my goodnight prayers. And, I, and he said, I said, well, God, I guess it's goodbye because we're moving to Idaho. And Ray, Ray Stedman said that you know what I've come to find as I look back over my life and the years my history is that wherever I went, whatever Idaho's I visited, I always found that God was there ahead of me. You're going into some tomorrow that frightens you. And things are not the same anymore and never will be. Whatever that tomorrow holds for you, you understand this. You can look into that tomorrow and you'll find His foot tracks there. For the author of the book of Hebrews says He's the pioneer of our faith. It means that He's gone preceding us wherever He leads us. Whatever, what is my response to this, you ask? Well, your response ought to be the same response as these, fear and joy. Fear because we're dealing with someone other than man. The resurrection is the proof of that. 
and joy because there is nothing that can destroy you, not even death. You remember reading those little Uncle Remus stories when you were a kid? You remember that? Um, I see you haven't. You know Brer Br- Fox and Brer Rabbit and Brer Br'er, you know those stories. Yeah, you remember. I see you now. It's kind of coming back to you. One day Brer Fox and Brer Rabbit, Brer Br'er Br- 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 had Br- Br'er Rabbit. You say that here. <laughs> had old Br'er Rabbit and they, they caught him and they put him on this homemade rotisserie and they had a fire built under him. They were fixing to cook, have a rabbit lunch. And old Br'er Rabbit singing to himself, how am I going to get out of this predicament? He'd been in several, but he didn't know how he's going to get out of this. And so uh, he started laughing. And he is laughing while that rotisserie is scorching him. And, and Br'er Fox says, what are you laughing about? Man, you're going to die. He said, I'm thinking of my laughing place. He said, a laughing place? What's a laughing place? He said, you don't have a laughing place? He said, man, I've got this laughing place where you just go and it just, you just laugh and you laugh and you laugh. And he kept talking about this laughing place to Br'er, Br'er uh, Fox, just, his curiosity just killing him. He said, well, where is this laughing place? He said, well, you t- untie me, let me down here and I'll show you. So he did. And he unties Br'er Rabbit and, and they go out in through the woods and, and Br'er Rabbit's thinking, now how am I going to get away? And Br'er Fox and Br'er Br'er, they're staying right on his tail, you know, they, they're not going to let him get away. And he comes to this big, you remember the story, it came to this big pile of bramble and inside of it was a hornet's nest. And so he stops and he says, there's my laughing place, right in there. Come on, uh, we'll get in there, it's the laughing place. And so Br'er Rabbit slips in, in through that bramble, but when Br'er Fox and Br'er Br'er got in there, they got all tangled up and the hornet's nest got caught on Br'er Br'er's head. And he's attacking, the hornets are attacking Br'er Fox and Br'er Br'er, and, and, and Br'er Fox says to Br'er Rabbit, I thought you said this was a laughing place. He said, I said it was my laughing place. I didn't say it was your laughing place. And while they chased Br'er Fox and Br'er Br'er off into the sunset, Br'er Rabbit's sitting there laughing. Everybody has a laughing place. It's the place where joy, fulfillment, life is found. For the people of the faith, that laughing place is before an empty tomb. Joy and fear and obedience. And so God says to you, the reason why life has turned upside down for you is this is because I have something greater for your life. No longer fishermen, fishers of men. Wish I could sing like Mark and Tracy. Old Mark was sweating. I mean, he, his face was redder than mine, hitting that high note. I wish I could sing like that. If I could, I'd sing Sandy Patty's latest song. I never tried to understand the sunrise. I only know it takes away the dark. I can't explain your healing or the joy I'm feeling. I only know you've come into my heart. And the light of a million mornings fills my heart. The sound of a million angels sing my song. The warmth of a love so tender touched my life and suddenly the light 
of a million mornings dawned on me. And in the deepest darkness of their life, with the foundations swept away, they went out to a laughing place. And the light of a million mornings dawned on them. He's not here. He is alive. And you'll find him in the Galilees of his will. Will you pray with me? Father, surely there is someone here today who has not seen Jesus. Surely there is someone here today who has become contented with second best, with mediocrity. Surely there is a reason you have stirred this world of ours and stir it. And I pray, Father, that we'll get a vision this morning of the heights where you would have us live in such a way that we'd never be happy to go back to the way we were. And give us a call that includes the world and our willingness to be obedient to that call. For I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now look here. I know this is a crowded place, but there's room for you. There's a way out to these aisles. I invite you this morning, you who have never found Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He died there for you. Rose again for you. God is saying, come and become a lifetime follower of Jesus. Commit your heart and life to Him this morning. And by prayer, invite Him into your life to be your Savior and Lord. Come publicly to do that. Don't be afraid to step out in the crowd. Someone from the balcony of the choir. Maybe there are Christian people this morning who would hear His call in the disturbing elements of life. Call to higher life, higher living, deeper commitment. To understand that there are people that only you can win only when you're committed to Him. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.